Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have a return visitor with my guest, Hilman Sorry. He is co-founder of Closed Loop and author of five books, Sales Playbook, The Builder's Toolkit, The Sales Enablement Playbook, Sales Development, Triangle Selling, and his latest book, Hiring, Onboarding, and Ramping Salespeople. Hillman, would you give people just a quick 30 seconds to remind them your journey to get where you are today? <laughs> the 30-second journey? It felt like 30 years, man. 30-second journey. I began my career in management consulting, moved from management consulting to being a leadership executive inside of a web security startup in California that was eventually acquired by a larger organization. I went from there to uh, deciding that I, I was in love with the idea of being William Randolph first. So I went into publishing for some time, <laughs> ran, ran, ran a business journal in the San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> I realized that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Became a Sandler trainer. Hello, Sandler. And did that for eight and a half years here in the Bay Area and then started my own firm about four years ago. We've been cranking away ever since. Or the, the differentiation being, I guess I moved from being a sales trainer to more into the world of management, consulting, and organizational development. Excellent. And what do Closed Loop do? Closed Loop does just that. We work with companies from startups that are just getting out of an accelerator, trying to get together their go-to-market and figure out if their pretty baby is actually something somebody wants to look at, <laughs> um, all the way through organizations that are uh, global and trying to pivot and transform organization to increase velocity and all of those metrics that are necessary to perform these days. So let's start with playbooks, because I know that's an area that you're very strong on. What makes for a good playbook? Well, I'll tell you what makes for a bad playbook first, because there are lots of ways to make You're like a prospect. You I'm like a I'll go with that. That was the next hey, one. We're in a political cycle over here in, in the United States. <laughs> Aren't we? We have an election the day after. Oh, right? that's right. You sure do. So you're accustomed to these folks just talking. To yeah, yeah, absolutely. You want to. <laughs> Are you going to lie to me as well? Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> it seems to be mandatory. <laughs> I think I'm ill-equipped. The reason I take it is because it's the easier answer, which might be the same for them. So the easy answer is that a playbook is not a static document. It is not a PowerPoint presentation that, you know, has not lots of marketing and branding and has been polished by some group of geniuses that have never been on a phone with a prospect or have never engaged in a sales process. It is not a document that codifies, you know, your founder's story and all sorts of things that might be very interesting to people's mothers, but still, again, not relevant to someone as a prospect. What it is, is a living process. It's a place where you have a single source of truth around your process, which is everything from the way in which you go about handling objections, the persona that you're trying to reach, your ICP, what are the messages to that persona? What do you mean by ICP for the audience? Uh, yeah, I apologize. Now, of course, you're putting me on the spot. I say ideal. I so often, your ideal customer profile. Thank okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 speak I, I, so often. Sentence, I felt I had to rescue. I appreciate. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> feel, feel free to do so throughout the conversation. <laughs> I'm never one to turn away a helping hand. This is a place that really should exist with sales knowledge and not knowledge that you're using in archival format. 
This is not a, a playbook is not something you give somebody when they first started an organization that helps them to onboard and understand the genesis of the organization and the types of things that you might talk to your board of directors around. A playbook needs to be something that is living, that allows for a salesperson to actually engage effectively in a conversation with their prospect in the moment, meaning those pithy terms, those phrases and sentences that actually catalyze a conversation or help somebody to disqualify. And that's the biggest challenge is folks don't know how to do that and they don't do it effectively. Instead, they end up with something that's more like a, a monitor stand where they print off something after a five-month kind of black box effort of extracting information for a bunch of different departments. And they're hoping that that actually has life beyond the, the day it was printed and it seldom does. This then raises a really interesting question in terms of how you use the playbook to coach your salespeople mm. as a manager. Absolutely. Well, that's the other piece is that it can create rigor and accountability when you do it effectively. In other words, I was just at a client yesterday and we were talking about one of the challenges inside of their organization, both the customer success organization as well as the sales organization, is that they are not effectively uncovering business pain. They're kind of looking for point solutions. So instead of asking questions around how this drives the business and what this means if you're unable to you know, generate a certain number of customers by the end of this quarter or what it means about not being able to retain your existing customers. They're asking questions around the lines of, you know, how are you managing lead flow, right? And that's not necessarily the critical issue that a CEO is managing for that day, but they don't have the tools inside of a playbook that allow them to facilitate a conversation at a higher level, which will correlate to value, help uncover a substantive pain that will then move somebody through their sales process. This is really interesting. I was speaking to Steve Norman a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and we were talking about the critical importance of managing the middle of the funnel. If you're in a sales organization, the manager's always beating the drum, get me more prospects, fill the pipeline, prospect more, make yeah. more calls. <laughs> um, right. And as soon as you've got the opportunity in the pipeline, the next question is, when will it close? Which I see as an act of massive idiocy because you're missing out the most important piece. It goes some way to explain why 47% of opportunities worldwide end in no decision, because there's not enough emphasis on the middle of the funnel. So in your experience, how do the best of the best use the playbook to drive and advance the middle of the funnel? Well, I'll tell you this, the playbook definitively aligns with your sales methodology or your selling system. Pick your term for what you want to call it. But the middle of the funnel is entirely dependent upon you having clarity, both in the stages and exit criteria inside of your, can I say CRM or do I have to define that one too? No, uh, CRM, <laughs> the, the, the system you use likely so that you can forecast uh, mythically. <laughs> mythically and epically. That's right. And then claw it all back, you know, after it doesn't come through, just push it to the next month. What you have to do is be able to ensure, first of all, inside of your playbook that you have clarity around your stages and the exit criteria. And what I mean by that is, yes, you've got all this top of funnel activity. And a lot of that is marketing, right? Demand generation. Maybe you're using sales development reps on the front end who are making phone calls. Maybe you're doing email. Who knows? There's a whole bunch of activity that happens prior to an actual sales conversation. Sometimes in some organizations, this is lumped into the sales organization. Other times, this they consider a marketing effort because it's taking something from cold to potentially being a lead in the conversation. So that, no matter there, but there's activity happening there to make conversations happen, right? Then you get yeah. the conversation. 
and you begin discovery. And here's the challenge where I see this clog happening, that 47% of no decision that just, you know, I think we've used the term pregnant pipelines before they just get bigger and bigger and they never give birth to any deals, right? The challenge there is that people do not have a system or a methodology or clarity around the exit criteria for each stage that logically and with data points helps you to convert from stage to stage. Instead, what they're doing is maybe they've got a methodology on the front, and I don't want to call any out, but there's lots of acronyms that call themselves methodologies that are really checklists, right? Can I figure out if this person has any money? Can I figure out if this person can use the money? Can I figure out if they're in need of something? Can I figure out, you know, potentially when this thing would close? You know which acronym I was using there. But (laughs) anyway. (laughs) A slightly helpful phrase, which is banter's bollocks. Yeah, it about um, this bollocks. I wish I could say bollocks. I don't know if Americans can get yeah. away with that, but that's exactly what it is. You can't a UK audience. It's a checklist. It's an effective, low-level checklist. And sure, those things are important, but when are you gleaning these from a conversation? And with what validity have you uncovered these four letters, right? But most people are running something, you know, Bant is 10 times more effective than nothing at all. And I think that eight out of 10 are running nothing at all. They're just shooting from the hip, right? Or they're running their process, not aligned with a buyer's journey. So one thing that a playbook does is it helps you understand what is that buyer's journey? And this is not necessarily to codify and say that, well, every buyer goes to G2 Crowd first and then evaluates software and then calls us and then wants to demo three to... I'm not saying something like that, but you do need to understand what buyers are doing, how you engage with them in a way that's not resistant and creating conflict and confrontation in the process, and how you serve that discovery process for the buyer while uncovering facts, right? Getting the truth for your sales organization. And of course, that's a mindset issue around the salesperson actually hearing what they want to hear versus using data points to understand whether or not the person I'm talking to is actually potentially going to buy from me, right? So that's the first piece. Then you get the playbook working towards helping you understand how do you move someone through this process in a logical way that you can validate based upon their actions, not based upon them saying, Marcus, you know, I'll tell you, this sounds really interesting. Let me run this up the chain. You know what I mean? That's, what does that mean? Anybody could say that. And they're saying that to be nice to you because you have such a high need for approval. So the idea being, how do you structure your sales process, structure your sales messages, structure your discovery in such a way that you're able to, with some reasonable certainty, there are no guarantees, obviously, right? Because you're dealing with human beings and you got a lot of variables there. But with some reasonable certainty that you can then begin to benchmark and test against, you can convert at a percentage that makes sense for your business. That's the idea. And then what you do with the playbook is you hold your sales team and your sales managers accountable to that rigor. If I don't have a playbook and I've got Marcus who shoots from the hip, but he's really good at discovery and he gets, he finds out pain really good. But then, you know, the problem with Marcus is that he's a shiny object guy. So he's going to be moving on to the next one because he's not really wanting to get into the weeds with trying to figure out who inside the organization is going to be involved in making this decision. Where's the money going to come from and how do I get a PO signed? And then you got Hillman Yeah, you know, he's a little gun shy with talking about things, but man, he's a process person, right? If you've got 16, I'm just using these as examples of probably eight to nine different persona types that you might have as a salesperson. If you don't have rigor around that process and you're trying to manage that as a manager with all of these narrative-based conversations, you're never going to succeed. And then that leads to your challenge of how do you hire for folks that you know will work inside of your system? If you have no system, you can't, right? Absolutely. I think one of the things that's coming out of this is that you have to be a champion of clarity because ambiguity is the mother of all food bars. And it's also the source of most conflict. If you end up with mismatched expectations, 
because the manager has been vague in what they expect and the salesperson does what they think they've been asked to do and there's a disconnect, that's going to create conflict and needless tension. Can I add to that? And, and I think yeah. I agree with this statement. I think that one of the challenges to that mindset is that organizations position salespeople and managers to lie because they're positioned with the ambition of closing more business as opposed to the ambition of getting rid of anybody that won't buy. If instead uh, you had... Yeah, absolutely. You, trying to fix you know what the I mean? End of the problem. You're you fixing the wrong end of the problem. Out. You disqualify out. You don't qualify in. And That's exactly right. The rule. That's Go exactly the right. That's um, it. Well, this then leads to my next observation, which is that if you have a good system that's focused on early disqualification so that you have a clean pipeline, it also lends itself to CRM hygiene. Most CRM systems that I've ever come across are populated with total shit. Absolutely. Um, and you can't rely on it as a management tool. You can't rely on it for forecasting. And essentially, even if you are running off reports, if people don't share a common language, a common understanding, and they don't understand what it takes to qualify to move to the next stage, then what you've got is essentially a lot of fiction. A um, lot of fiction and, and disparate fiction at that. It's not even, uh, it's narrative filled. It's not even aligned with any specific vernacular or culture inside of an organization. Then you also have these managers spinning cycles around these long conversations where someone is relating the specifics of the actual conversation as opposed to saying, so look, what did you uncover, which is the problem that we can solve? Okay, and what does that problem correlate to as far as the cost of that problem to the organization? Okay, and have you evaluated these six, seven, eight, you know, types of issues that could torpedo this process for us? And what did the prospect say that leads you to believe that this is actually going to march through to PO? As opposed to this hopey, hopey, maybe baby land, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, you touched on another really important point, which is that if you do this correctly with a good playbook and it's embedded into your CRM, then you have the possibility of doing an effective pre-mortem. And right. you can identify where the mines are, where the missiles are coming from, where the roadblocks are, and the areas of the stones that haven't been turned over. And as a result, you can mitigate against the disaster. And particularly where people have a weak or inconsistent pipeline, it really is essential to have absolute clarity on all of this. That's because exactly right. if you don't, then one deal, can kill your entire month or quarter. And if that's two quarters in a row, that's a P45 or a pink slip wending its way to you. I agree with that completely. The other issue I'll add to that is that you can end up with false positives. When people print off a playbook, let's, let's say we have embarked upon a playbook effort, which has taken 90 days for us to complete across four different departments inside of the organization. And now we've got this document that we are printing out and distributing and we're going to do an SKO around this document and everyone's going to be read in. And this SKO, is uh, sales, sorry, sales, sales kickoff around this document and everybody is going to be read in and this is what we're going to use moving forward, right? Now, here's what happens. A salesperson who is actually on the phone with people on a regular basis is going to take this thing. They're going to look at it and they're going to say- Do you know any of them? Right, yeah, right. <laughs> they're going to say- I know 75% of this, 30% of this is, well, let's say 15% uh, of this is BS. 
And 10% of it is moderately interesting. I'll get to it later, right? I was not involved in the process. This does not sound like the conversations that I'm having. And the first time they have a conversation with somebody using one of these pieces of new material that does not convert into an opportunity, (laughs) they're going to say the whole thing is garbage and they're not going to use it anymore, right? So this is what we mean about having an ecosystem. So the ecosystem is such that it's almost like taking your sales team and creating a laboratory. We're saying, here's what we know. Here's the control, right? These are the things that we've done well consistently. We know that these messages land within this vertical market for this persona. Here's where we're going because we have a roadmap as a technology organization, let's say, or even a service organization that's continuing to develop products and partnerships and other things that they can sell through. We have a roadmap around a greater market, which we're hoping will help to increase profitability or revenue for our organization. For that market to succeed, here are some things that we think should happen. Here's how we're going to go about testing that market. Now, if you call it that, and if you allow for a salesperson to have a framework by which they drop this into their system of selling and then have conversations and come back and say, you know, Marcus, I have to calibrate this because this thing that you thought was relevant for CFOs in this marketplace, for chief financial officers in this marketplace, really isn't. What I'm hearing instead is that they're concerned about this because the economy is about to tank. And then you tweak it. But you need to be able to do this live. You can't do that in a printed document. So, And we don't have any investments in particular software. There's lots of playbook software out there that works effectively. If you don't want to buy software, use an Excel spreadsheet, but create something that is very thin. And by thin, I mean not some weighty CRM type of a technology process but create something that allows for top to bottom communication, dissemination throughout the team, because there's one person on the team who's been there for 10 years, who's got all these great things nested in his or her head, but doesn't necessarily sit down and spew those out to the sales team. Create a means by which all this information gets shared so that the organization has a rising tide, right? Absolutely. You mentioned persona types. Can you go into a little bit more detail about that for the audience? Yeah, when we talk about personas, a lot of folks talk about titles specifically, you know. So our ideal customer profile is a I'm making this up, a chief executive officer, a chief financial officer or maybe a VP of operations, right? This is what they'll say. And that's great. You give that to a salesperson, they're able to go into LinkedIn or choose your data platform, enter that and find people in their market that they could talk to and have a conversation. The challenge with letting persona end there goes back to what we were talking about around this business use case. What is the job to be done, right? Clayton Christensen wrote a great book that talks about this concept of the job to be done. So not just understanding the title itself, but what are they on the hook for? What is their day-to-day like? What are the challenges that they are experiencing in managing and operating towards their goals individually inside of the organization, right? Because pain is personal. Problems happen to organizations, right? So understanding what are the levers you can pull that impact them personally, and how does that correlate to a business value proposition that will help them move something throughout the sales process inside of the organization. So one of the things that we're finding in a lot of the companies that we're working with is something as simple as just business acumen is missing. Folks are so beaten to death with what the product does, what the buttons do, what the competition proposes to do, and what a specific job title might be interested in, that they don't understand the impact of that person inside of an organization with an org chart where they potentially have folks that report to them and things that they're responsible to reporting up. They don't understand what those things are and how those things actually drive the business. 
So what happens then is you have these conversations that are challenged by creating urgency. Because how many of us are out there looking for point solutions? There are tons of organizations that have inefficiencies, and I think every organization wants to make money or save money. If you're out there espousing any of those three things, then you're just like everybody else. So if you're not telling me the thing that I just heard coming out of my board meeting last quarter that I'm on the hook to make happen inside of my organization or I won't be here in January, then you are not at the top of my list. So a lot of what we work with around developing these playbooks is having these robust conversations around who is it that we're talking to and why. And what comes out of that sometimes, Marcus, is that you've got somebody who might be the business owner who doesn't own the problem. Now, we still need to be able to frame the conversation in such a way where that individual gets it. But we also need to be able to correlate that to the individual who's having the problem today and how we are solving for that problem. That's where personas come into play. Okay, so... Let me take this slightly tangentially to the channel. Okay. Obviously, big area of interest for me. What I'm curious about is why are playbooks not more widely available from vendors to their partners? And what needs to happen for the partners to buy into using the playbook? Okay. So I've got a couple thoughts here. You're the expert on this, but these are the thoughts based upon the context of my experience. Let's separate this. There are organizations that are mature, that have channels that, whether or not they are performing, they exist and have existed for some time and are material to the business, right? Then there are those that aspire to the channel, right? Because they believe that these folks have stronger relationships and the self will be easier than people trying to sell direct or maybe- Let let me just caveat that. Let me just caveat that because many organizations- that are looking at the channel are seeing it as a get out of sales free card. Yes. Absolutely isn't. This is what I was going to say. That's precisely it. So you asked why that doesn't exist because in those organizations who are looking at it as a get out of sales free, they are looking at this from the vantage point of, I can sign up a channel. They have the relationships. They will manage the sales function and they are wiping their hands of the responsibility of equipping that channel with what they need to sell that product most effectively. Because it's- I'm glad you said hands. Hands? (laughs) 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 I'll let you translate that into (laughs) language that makes better sense. It's better left unsaid. (laughs) The implications are often more impactful, right? (laughs) Uh, but um, But that's exactly what they're doing. You know what I mean? So they're saying, hey, and they get somebody who comes in with a business development title, right? And you and I have talked about this before, who's running around with an expense account and a credit card and making friends, right? (laughs) Signing contracts that are never going to really materialize or manifest any revenue. But then they walk away from it saying they know how to sell to their companies because implied in that is that they've already done it. They've sold before. What they don't understand is that organization may not know how to sell your product most effectively. And if you're not equipping them to do so, they're not going to because they've got six other products, you know, at least that they're working well, with. This is really interesting. I mean, the research that I've been doing over the last 18 months is strongly indicating that 2% of your partners will generate 40 to 60% of your revenue. I believe And it. I was in with a prospect a couple of weeks ago and They've got about 5,000 partners, of whom 3% do the majority of their business, nearly 60%. 
Now, what it means in effect is that they're spending six and a half million pounds a year on MDF utterly unproductively. Wow. Now, MDF is Marketing Development Fund. Basically, this is the money that vendors give to their partners in order to help them market their products to make more sales. But that's six and a half million pounds focused on maybe 90 partners is going to yield a much higher return. In fact, it will yield a return instead of a six and a half million pound loss. Some of that money can be spent on recruiting partners just like the 2% or developing the B plus partners that have A player potential. And this is where I see things go horrifically wrong because most organizations, when they train the channel in massive air quotes, what they train them in is product and they don't teach them how to sell. I remember going to train a large engineering company and a guy called Tom from Texas, who was about five and six foot wide, and he spent 90 minutes explaining in graphic, tedious detail the features and benefits and the characteristics of a bunch of flow meters. So this was an engineering company. And not one salesperson bothered to ask, well, Tom, that's great, but how do I use that to sell this shit? (laughs) And their sales had been flatlining for ages. I mean, they maybe grew 1% if they were lucky. And if the oil market was booming, it might grow to 1.5%. Right. What really flabbergasts me is that in the channel in particular, it's all about product training. And you've got to get out of that. And the playbook is a fantastic tool in order to help you help your partners sell more. Remember, your partners are in business for their reasons, not yours. They do not wake up in the morning saying, you know, what I really want is to sell Hillman's shiny carbungulator. They're not interested in that. What they're interested in is how can they grow their business for their reasons. And it's your job as the vendor to help them sell more, more effectively. And just one other point, if you recruit a partner, and you haven't helped them make the second sale within the first 90 days, there is about an 85 to 90% probability that partner will go dark on you. So all the money, time, effort, blood, sweat, tears, legal costs, and all that effort in recruiting them, onboarding them, provisioning them on your PRM system, training them will be wasted. Is that right? Man, those statistics are phenomenal. I was taking some notes as you were talking. One of the things that you mentioned, I think that bears repeating or bears aligning, is that the playbook also allows for you as an organization to identify the 3% and what they are doing effectively. So Absolutely, and share best practice. And share best practice and also use it for recruiting. Give it to your BD or your strategic team and say, we need more of these folks. These other folks that you thought were the key, they're not getting it done. Let's go find more people like this 3% and let's equip them with what they need to be successful based upon the fact that we've seen this successful before. But you can't do that when you haven't laid out some semblance of theory or some semblance of process or some semblance of, I keep using this term control, just meaning that I don't mean control from the standpoint of micromanagement, but control. predictability. Predictability. Absolutely. That's it. That's it. I think that's key. But again, I think that people understand, not now, not everybody. I think that some folks get this cerebrally. I don't think it's a difficult argument to make. In practice, what's challenging is that it involves 
really focusing on the data, really focusing on the process and doing the tedious work of stepping one foot at a time, as opposed to just having these high aspirations. You know, I've seen these documents, Marcus, where folks have signed these strategic relationships that there is no commitment. And by commitment, I mean rigor around activity, right? The only commitment yeah. that might exist is, is, like you said, some marketing dollars spend. But there is no commitment around activity. But there are huge aspirations around what this partnership is going to develop. There might be a thesis at the top that says, you know, looking towards a $10 million relationship between Marcus and Hillman to sell through XYZ widget. And then no clarity around how that's going to happen. You know? This is, again, really key. That before you put a ring on their finger, it's crucial that you've identified what a good partner looks like and what one doesn't, and that you have a strong upfront contract. And that upfront contract means that you are willing to train them as if they are your own, that the partner is willing to let you train them as if you are they are your own that you have an upfront contract about accountability, about regular prospecting and account reviews, making sure that you have an escalation contract in place in the event that you find you're being blocked or stuck, that you know who's going to keep the kids in the event of a divorce, making sure that there is a cadence of regular accountability, regular contact, and that your channel managers are going to spend a lot of time coaching your salespeople within the partner, helping midwife deals. Because again, if you're not putting money into their bank account, they'll find another vendor. We talk about partners being coin-operated. And to some degree, I almost regret saying that because I think people are, money is a motivating factor. But what they really want to do is do great work. And a lot of these partners have got very deep, close relationships with their clients, and they want to do their best work. And partners help each other get better. And this is really key. In terms of the upfront contract, I firmly believe that what you need to establish is that you are going to serve your partners to better serve their customers. This is very interesting to me. Because what you've just said hit upon something that I don't think I've ever articulated to a client. But what you need internal to your organization is not the salesperson. Often they put somebody who has like graduated, they've gotten to that point in their career where they have an opportunity to either move into management or they're going to become like an enterprise person because they understand the business really well. And they'll take that individual who was a good salesperson and they'll put them in charge of the channel. And that person will go out and they will hunt and they will find folks who are willing to sign a contract. And then they kind of move on, right? And then maybe they're handed off internally to someone that's kind of maybe a success type person or account management type individual inside of the organization. What they really need and what needs to be implicit in the discussion early on is that we're going to provide you a coach. And that coach inside of our organization is going to hold you accountable to the activity that we know will make you successful because we should have uncovered pain in your organization, which is the reason we're doing business with you, right? It's not just, hey, you're cute. I'm cute. Let's be cute together. No, it's like, hey, we need market share. You need more products to be able to sell through so that you can increase your revenue for your board of directors. Well, now let's do this thing. And this is how we're going to come together around it. But if there is some level of commitment at at the business level 
And then there is a coach who is working with the individuals who are either in management or are actually the salespeople inside of the organization to help move the business. Then it's much more impactful. So some of the things that you mentioned, rigor around account review, rigor around understanding what messages are resonating in the marketplace, rigor around the sales process itself, and also being able to provide help throughout that sales process, whether that's technical assistance or whether it's product assistance or whether it's just helping to understand how to navigate a customer's sales decision-making process. Any of these types of things are essential. But I think that the type of person who you're putting in that role internally is really key. It needs to be someone who understands how to manage through others or how to impact business and generate results through others. And that person is truly like a manager inside of an organization, as opposed to someone who has come from being an individual contributor. Okay, well, let's take that a little bit further. We analyze this and we've actually, with our partner, Divine Group, we've developed a predictive hiring tool. And what we've found is that the best channel managers are closer to a general manager than a sales manager. And the best channel chiefs have a profile that is closer to a chief executive than a VP of sales. This then moves us neatly into the next area that I'd like to talk about, which is hiring, onboarding, and ramping of salespeople and channel managers. So give us a quick overview of what the book is about first off. Yeah, so the book, again, is called Hiring, Onboarding, and Ramping Salespeople. And we picked salespeople most specifically because that's the audience that we work with most deeply, but I think that it could be relevant to some other revenue operations inside of an organization. Really, what we've developed is a, the TEAM framework. So it's T-E-A-M. And what that stands for is identifying talent, engaging new hires, accelerating performance, and developing mastery. So the idea here is that most organizations have what they call a hiring program. And that basically means that you have abdicated hiring to someone in HR who is doing some level of recruitment, or you've got a talent officer that's out there recruiting for some number of characteristics that you think are important. You're bringing that person in. The person then comes in, they sit down, and they have ad hoc interviews with whoever might be available (laughs) who has had exactly 38 seconds of preparation (laughs) to to come into the interview and ask questions that they might find relevant based upon whether or not they've had breakfast that day and want to get out of the room. Then you make some sort of a hiring decision. So some organizations are, are using assessments. They're using them on the back end of the process, though, which does not help confirmation bias. After I've spent six hours in conversation with this individual, I don't want to hear from your assessment that they're not a good fit. So I'm just going to overlook that, right? We, we've all <laughs> seen that happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> this assessment doesn't know my business as well as I know my business, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Then you bring somebody on board, you put them through their an onboarding process and the onboarding usually consists of you know a bunch of PowerPoint decks or maybe they're lucky enough to have video 45 minutes of the founder or VP of sales or some other managers talking about product and talking about positioning. They move through some kind of a test out where they're able to talk about the product effectively and they understand a 30 second commercial or an elevator pitch. And then they begin ramping. And the ramping process basically is just that we'll start you off at no quota After 60 days, you're responsible for half quota. After 90 days, you should be at full quota. And then we're done with you. And then they walk away and they start it all over again, right? That's what typical hiring, onboarding, and ramping looks like. So we looked at that and we're like, you know, this is is broken, right? You've got people washing out. I think that same 47% correlates, there may be a correlation between the pipeline and the individuals, correlates to the folks who are not hitting their quota inside of a sales organization, right? 
So we looked at this and, and, and we built this out in a lot of organizations to change the mindset. And the first piece is you have to identify talent. It's not just hiring, right? Hiring is easy to do. What's hard to do is to identify the talent that is going to work in your organization today, right? So we developed a process around which you go about identifying that talent, understanding where your organization is going, what your organization needs, and actually doing that work on a consistent basis, again, with a feedback loop around who's performing well, that allows you to go out and find the folks who you should be working with. Now, the upshot of doing this and the upshot of using assessment tools, and there's some great ones out there. We don't necessarily have one of our own or one that we promote, but using a skills assessment on the front end of the process allows you to effectively go get folks who are not just stamped with a pedigree. And what I mean by that here in Silicon Valley is there are people who want to hire from Google, Facebook, Twitter, Dropbox, you know, all of these names that everybody knows. And there are a finite number of those individuals and they are all going to be rich because everybody wants them. And the organization that is at Series A probably can't afford them, right? <laughs> so what yeah. do they do? Well, they go out and they need to find the right person for their organization. And if you are able to identify the talent that is right for you, you can go to somewhere in Central Arkansas University and recruit the person who tests out well and who you know you can bring into the organization and effectively train up to, to, to work and, and to be successful. So that first piece is how do you, inside of your organization, evaluate talent that's going to be successful for you as a salesperson. The next piece is that you need to engage new hires. And engaging and onboarding are two different things. Engaging a new hire is pulling them into the organization from the standpoint of letting them live the playbook, letting them live the sales process, helping them to understand at every level what our customers are doing effectively with our product and what that looks like inside of their organization. Again, the job to be done of the specific personas that we're targeting and understanding how we go about navigating our sales process and why it exists that way. The next pace after that is understanding how do we now accelerate the growth of this individual. And that engagement piece could take 120, could take nine months, depending upon the organization, right? But then how do we now accelerate the performance once we have gotten some data points that show that this individual is having some success? And the acceleration piece is, the goal here is to eliminate these peaks and valleys. We don't want to have I had applied pressure and the manager was coaching me effectively. And so I hit my goal. Whew, okay, on to the next person. But then the next two months, I'm missing my goal or I'm barely hitting my goal or I'm struggling somehow. And then you keep coming back and having to apply pressure to make this successful. We want this thing to look, if not like a hockey stick, at least like you're climbing a mountain and consistently having success. So what inside of the organization allows you to consistently accelerate performance of the individual? And then obviously aligning that with mastery. When you get to a point, what is the point at which this person has developed mastery of this specific role that either allows them to stay in the role and thrive and, and maybe become a leader on the floor or enables them to be eligible for that next step? And let's prepare them for the next step before we promote them into it. So you're not ending up with this Peter principle of a whole bunch of frontline managers who just happen to be the best salesperson on the floor that you've now moved into management positions. And now you... <laughs> You have two problems, right? One, that person's a poor manager, and two, you've lost their revenue, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Double whammy, lose a good salesperson, gain a ship manager. That's, that's exactly who, right. Who does what was done to them and then can't pass on their skills. That's right. Uh, so the impact, I calculate that the cost of a wrong hire in a sales position for enterprise can be anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary that take into account the hidden costs. 
For a manager, it can be five to 10 times that. You can literally move the decimal point. And so you've got to get really smart about this. If you're not savvy, once you've done that one or two times, you're going to look around and realize that where you had A player salespeople, you now have an entire B player sales organization because they are not going to hire people who they believe are smarter than them, right? Well, if you're lucky, you get B players, you'll probably get Cs. You probably end up with Cs. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, it. people hiring their own image only weaker if their egos are fragile and brittle. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm curious. I mean, I'd like to take that conversation into the channel, which we'll do another time. But I'm conscious that we've only got a few minutes left. And what I'd really like to do is now move on to the subject of scale-ups and funding. Because I think one of the big problems or a a major problem that occurs with scale-ups is they grow very fast. And because they haven't got a good plan, they haven't got the right positions mapped out in advance. They tend to retrofit people who are a poor fit. They don't have a good sales methodology, which everybody is consistently implementing. They don't have a playbook and they don't have a great attraction, hiring, onboarding, and nurturing process to develop their salespeople. Then the wheels come off. I know that you guys spend a lot of time working with funders and helping Silicon Valley scale-ups. So how do you prevent going from scale-up to turnaround? You just nailed it. Even in a two-person, we were talking to an organization uh, two weeks ago that's gotten a significant amount of funding. And on the non-product development side, meaning not engineers or product side, they have two people. And they said, you know, we're probably talking to you guys a little bit early, but our goals are $10 million in the next two years. And we need to figure out uh, which part of the marketplace will do this. And we said, okay, well, you need to start with a sales playbook. And they're like, well, well, is the playbook what you do once you've gotten all this codified? And we're like, absolutely yeah. not. It's what you do to begin the test, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole idea. And what's interesting is that technical founders get this in spades. They love it. They soak it up because it demystifies what they have believed is that sales is an art, right? They're like, oh, so you mean I can do a certain number of activity at a certain quality and hypothesize that it will convert at a certain percentage and then go test it? <laughs> We're like, that's exactly right. <laughs> like, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's just it, is putting some rigor around what it is that you're doing, which also, you know what's interesting, Marcus, is it's more critical at the stage that you are scaling, where everybody's still wearing a couple hats and everybody, yeah. you know, C- CEO, co-founder, whatever, is still involved in every sales process. It's more critical then because it is not your sole job function. So how do you balance raising money, having conversations with board, doing the strategic piece, ensuring that your product roadmap is on track, talking to your beta customers and selling? How do you do all that if you don't have a process? Where you can dip in and say, okay, for these X hours, this is the activity that I'm doing. Otherwise, you're stuck starting from behind. So that's that's the first challenge. The other piece, though, that's really interesting with respect to scale-ups and startups is that... I'll give you an example. I had a conversation on Tuesday of last week with an organization in Southern California that has just raised a big chunk of money as a strategic investment because they're in a specific vertical that is very niche, right? Very large, but still very niche. and 
in their process of working through VCs, VCs will always introduce you to their friends, right? So Marcus wants some money from me. I'm going to give you some money. and I'm going to tell you that you need to go have a conversation with Charles, right? Because Charles is the guy. Charles is the person that helps organizations grow. Charles's pedigree is that, you know, there are a bunch of uh, unicorns that he's been affiliated with to some degree. He's my buddy. You're going to bring him on board as an advisor, right? Then you start yeah. getting very chief heavy. This organization in particular had brought on somebody who was chief of staff and they have no salespeople. Okay, Marcus, zero salespeople. And the question that was posed to me was, so should we bring this individual in full time to be a CRO? <laughs> and I said, you know, you can imagine what I said, right? That you need to yep. just go get somebody who's a good salesperson, call them a head of sales, give them an opportunity for growth, but tell them that the activity is what's necessary. They need to prove out data points around where we can accelerate. And then they need to prove that they can hire people who can do what they've done effectively. And then you move your way up the line towards management. But the idea is like, do I start here at the highest level and then hope to build underneath, which we know is a complete fallacy because that CRO is not making a cold call. That CRO is not sending an email. <laughs> you know, the CRO is not having a low-level conversation with, with a manager. The C-level is going to be entirely, the CRO is going to be entirely strategic. That's part of the challenge is knowing what you need when you need. And the last piece I'll say on this, I know I have to be conscious of time. The last piece I'll say on this with respect to hiring as you're scaling an organization is that it is important to hire for now. Every organization believes that they'll be a $100 million company or a billion dollar company, or they wouldn't be in business. And somebody else believes it too, right? That's why they've given you money to go and grow this thing. So the challenge is, what do you need today? Because hiring for the next 18 to 24 months is critical because if I don't get to 10 million, I'm not getting to 100. And being able to hire that person with an idea towards where the organization will grow and where they'll fit into the organization is far more important to hire for today and for the next 18 to 24 months than it is to hire that enterprise sales rep who's accustomed to closing $15 million deals when you're a $2 million company and no one is going to give you a $15 million deal. So understanding that and having some humility around that and stair-stepping your hiring plan around what it is that you need in the moment is uh, not necessarily in the moment, a little further out than in the moment, but what you need in the next 18 months is more critical because if you don't get through that that rung of the ladder, then you're you're not going to make it. I'm curious to have your thoughts on this. I'm sensing that there is a, a turning of the tide and the bubble is going to burst on these companies that scale massively, but they make no profit. They're on a land grab for market share. But by the time they get to IPO, they're not a sustainable business. What are your thoughts? Do you reckon the bubble's about to burst? You know, I agree. And what's interesting about the way you framed that is that one of the challenges in Silicon Valley is that there's plenty of money. You know, money is actually a commodity. People can, if you have a good product or product concept, you can shop and and everybody will be willing to give you money because they need to place the bets to be able to ensure that they're going to stay in business as part of the VC game, right? What we are seeing now are so many bets having been made because it's it's a competitive marketplace, right? And there is a certain collective consciousness. If I come up with the minesweeper, then someone in, in London is coming up with the minesweeper. Someone in China is coming up with the minesweeper at the same time. People far smarter than me have figured out how this thing works, but it exists on multiple levels. What is key and what is going to be the differentiator is the execution, right? Am I just taking on money and leveraging the money to make poor business decisions business decisions, meaning business viability and fiduciary responsibility to the organization, 
or am I truly building a company? Now, one happens really fast. The sad thing is, you know, you look at something like WeWork. Do you get information on WeWork in, in the UK? Yep. Okay. You look at something like WeWork. That was just greed, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? And one person is walking, well, a couple people are walking away with a ton of money while a business has largely failed, right? And I'm not suggesting that there is nefarious intent in all of these organizations, but whether it's ignorance, whether it's malicious, or whether it's misguided, I would agree with you that some correction is going to take place. It always does in in, in a capitalistic society. That said, you can do both. This is what we work with our organizations around, is how do you create hockey stick numbers, right? Where you just have a trajectory that is coming out of the gate and it's full, game, full guns blazing, while having some discipline around creating a business that is economically viable going forward. We really do not work with companies that are just pouring cash into an effort that's just like, let's just, let's expand, 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 and deal with it later once we own the marketplace. I think one of the reasons why is that we are not, we don't work with B2C organizations. We don't work business to consumer. Yeah, I think you could do that in the consumer organization because you have an opportunity, multiple opportunities to monetize that consumer once they're your customer or once they're part of your audience. I think that there needs to be a deeper level of rigor with respect to B2B. And I think that's showing up. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. I could have just said yes. No, no, that was a great answer. I mean, my co-author, David Davies, and I are currently selecting a private equity partner to work with or a VC who has a fund and they've got 30, 40 investments in that fund. And instead of getting two or three to IPO, the others dying on the vine, we're looking at helping them get 12, 15, 20 of them to IPO profitably. That's Um, exactly building, Building sustainable businesses. I think the VC market and the private equity market have grown fat on the 220 model. For those of you who are not familiar with it, they get 2% every year as a management fee, 2% of the fund. And they get 20% of the carry, which is if you IPO for 500 million, you get 20% of that upon exit. With respect to that, we have been working with a lot of PE firms. They're a lot of fun to work with too because they are in the business. They're really interested in the process of the business, in the product itself and the product's roadmap in the go-to-market and viability of the sales team. And scale is at a different level of consciousness for them. I'm a product of the 80s. <laughs> so I grew up with where they were doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions, a lot of leverage buyouts, things like that, where, where yeah. that's what you had to do to make it work and then be able to sell it again in five years. Without the downside of the 80s, which involved a lot of you know, layoffs and shrinkage, to bleed companies dry. I'm seeing a lot of private equity firms that are looking to build this growth part of their organization that is really responsible for doing exactly what you said. So I think those partnerships make a lot of sense. They're looking at the investments. They're talking to us about doing a sales hygiene audit, a personnel audit to make sure that they've got the right people, that they have a system and a process that's repeatable, scalable, executable. And looking at that both in terms of direct but also channel and making sure that their investments are channel ready. Because if you haven't been able to sell the damn stuff, then chances are your partners won't either. So you need to have that expertise, the experience to build the playbook, to train, to coach, to help them get deals over the line, how to sell past no, how to territory map, how to displace incumbents 
because many of these companies are moving into spaces where they're similar but different, and they need to be able to displace the incumbent technology. And as tech gets more complicated, I, you know, I was speaking to Jay McBain uh, a couple of months ago, and he was saying that the technology stack in the next 10 years will grow to 35 million different option variants. There's no way a vendor can play in that space without partners. And Gartner is forecasting 90% of technology by 2026 will be sold via the channel. So if you're not thinking about the channel now, you're already too late. You need to start developing your strategy. You need to make sure that you're going out, you're building your special forces unit, that 2%. So you need to have a clear partner persona. You need to know what the ideal partner looks like. You need to understand why they are in business. You need to understand how you can help them be successful. And you also need to get involved in their recruitment of their salespeople. And I think this is where if you've been able to develop the right kind of level of trust, because in the channel, your currency are trust and influence. You have no power. You have to be able to help the partners recognize that you are their ally. You're not their adversary. You're not their accomplice. You're their ally. And you're going to work with them to help them find the right kind of salespeople, onboard them, train them, develop them, accelerate their growth, and make sure that there's that synergy between what you're doing and what they're trying to achieve. Making sure that you're involved in their sales meetings, in their accountability process, in their prospecting activity, which means that you can't spread yourself too thin. You can't have 80 to 100 partners to look after. You can have maybe four, five, six, maybe eight at the most. And you really need to be in those businesses constantly working with them, spending 80% of your time helping them to grow, helping them to attract new customers, identify opportunities, capture and share lessons. And this is a huge mistake that many organizations make. We've already alluded to it, where they go to an exhibition and they think it's successful when they sign up 20, 30, 50 <laughs> That's um, right. of whom, if you're lucky, one of them might work out. Maybe. Not through any effort of your own, <laughs> but just no, by happenstance. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but it's more luck than judgment. That's right. Okay, what are you reading to, watching, listening to at the moment? What am I reading? Let's see. So uh, around the holidays, so um, I'm reading fiction. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving my mind a break. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. I'm reading one book called Mental Models, which is a really yeah. good book by Peter Hollins. It's all around uh, logical analysis, decision-making, problem-solving, things like that. And then I'm reading this book that somebody gave me called Seven Types of Ambiguity. Seven Types of Ambiguity is a fiction book. It's, did you ever read Faulkner, William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying? You know that book? Right. Okay. Surely it should be called Seven-ish Types of Ambiguity. Right. <laughs> they missed an opportunity there, didn't they? That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. I mean, <laughs> that is great. I'm going to send the author in there. So anyway, the, the genre is a story that is told from multiple points of view. I really love those where there's, because I always find it interesting. And maybe this is part and parcel of having been a salesperson for 30 years is that it's always interesting to me that the very same conversation is perceived very differently by the parties involved. 
right? It's all through the lens of your own experience, the lens of your own bias, the lens of your own intentions, any of these types of things. Two great books I strongly recommend. Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. Oh, I love Ryan Holiday, and I've read Stillness is the Key. Awesome book. Awesome book, but the book of the year, as far as I'm concerned, is The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. Oh, wow. The Road Less Stupid. It is magnificent. It's the kind of book that I'd have written, because basically it's full of shitty, awkward, uncomfortable questions that leave you nowhere to hide. Um, (laughs) It's magnificent. Um, I love it. In terms of advice, we've already done the golden ticket on our last conversation. What are the do's and don'ts for those looking to raise funding for a tech scaler? Looking to raise funding. The bit of advice I would give for raising funding is to ensure that whatever your product is truly is solving a problem for an addressable market that is a size that is reasonable. Not an addressable market that you've gone to some Gartner quadrant and you realize that even though you only really satisfy 5% of this quadrant, you're going to throw in you know, a $6 trillion total addressable market right? just for your slide deck. You've got to be sure because the problem is not raising the money. The problem is executing on the raise, right? You've got the money now. That's great. Somebody, you know, somebody gave you half a million dollars in seed capital or, wow, you raised a Series A for a couple million. You're still going to go sell the product. And if you don't know how you're going to do that, simply based upon the problem that you are solving for somebody that is significant enough that they are willing to spend whatever the amount of money is that you're charging for your product, then you're dead in the water. I'm not saying anything new. Everybody says the same thing. My pal, Jerry Lemberg, who was claimed to be one of the four founders of Intel and one of the earliest investors from KB into Oracle and Microsoft, he used to describe entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. And I see them all the time. I see them all the time. There's business we turn down because we just say we just don't see how, how this addresses a market problem. You know, and they, nobody likes to hear that because they've developed some bells and whistles that look really slick. Excellent. Okay. So, Hillman, thank you very much. This has been really insightful, learned a lot, and thoroughly enjoyable. So, thank you. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on, Marcus. How can people get hold of you? You can go to our website, www.closeloop.com. That's close with a Z. So C-L-O-Z-E-L-O-O-P.com or look up Hillman Sorry on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect and have a conversation. Brilliant. Hillman, thanks again. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Marcus. So guys, take notes, pay attention to the hints and tips that Hillman's given you. If you have comments, then please put them on to the post where you found this. If you've got any questions about scaling up, about building your channel, then do get in touch. And if you or someone you know would make a great guest for the Inquisitor podcast, I'd love an introduction. So please do get in contact. And if there's someone you've read a great book and you think that I could do a good job of interviewing them, then please pass me their details and I'll try and get them onto the podcast. That's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling and happy new year, I guess, by the time you get to listen to this. Take care now. Bye.